This afternoon, we're pleased to have uh, Professor Ian Stewart here. He's a uh, professor of geocommunications at Plymouth University in the uh, School of Geography, Earth, and the Environment. And, uh, his particular research interests are archaeoseismology, earthquake geology, geohazards, and uh, how geological change interacts with humans and uh, human response to this. You may not know, he's also a member of the UNESCO scientific panel. Um, but what you probably do know is he's a BBC presenter for programs such as uh, Climate Wars, Earth, Power of the Planet, and his current series, Man of Rock. Last week we covered uh, Moving Mountains, and this evening at 9 p.m. on BBC. Last part to the big freeze. So let's welcome Ian to Oxford. Thank you very much. It kind of feels as if I'm coming to the hallowed territory of geography on telly with uh, Nick Middleton stuff, who preceded me by at least five years. But um, it's fantastic to, uh, to come along here. And the remit that I had, the kind of brief, if you like, was to talk a little bit about the, um, the research, but also the television work. Um, and I thought a lot about it, and, uh, and I, I hope to, to do that. And to make a general point, really, all the way through, which is this idea of, of how we communicate uh, and what we should communicate. So I've called this, because um, I didn't give Troy a title, I think, even, even this morning when I phoned him, I still hadn't got a title, but it's called a three-act structure, and it kind of alludes to uh, a view within television, documentary making in general, which was very strong, especially five years ago, and it's less, it's kind of moved on a little bit, the old, uh, certainly those who knew the traditional horizon style, which was that a story has a three-act structure. It, it's something that goes back to myth, most of the BBC science producers, um, certainly a few years ago, used to go off on a Hollywood script writing course where they would be told there are only a handful of ways of telling a story. And if you want to uh, tell a story, you, you need to fo follow those conventions. Or if you're going to break those conventions, you need to understand you're breaking conventions. Um, and that means that's fine for, for fiction and doing a Hollywood blockbuster. But the interesting thing then is how do you take that and apply it to the science documentary and then in some ways to science, telling science stories generally. And this, the three-act structure works in a way that the, the first act sets up a problem, a dilemma, a story, the, the question that it could be the big mystery that's, all, that's never been known. And then you introduce your characters who are going to, to feature in this. And then the second act really is the journey they, those characters take the way they move through engaging with the, the story, engaging with the challenges, they overcome various challenges. And, and at the end of the second act, they come to what looks like a resolution. They've discovered something. But at the end of the second act, in the horizon that used to be 36 minutes in, there was a twist. And suddenly everything you'd just be following for the last 36 minutes was thrown around. And you thought, what's going on? And then the last... Uh, 20 minutes would be a, a rollicking story to try to come to the, the, the solution and everything would be tied up at the end. So in some ways, you know, for the scientist, the scientist, the, if it's the old kind of man, uh, you know, boy likes girl, boy chases girl, boy finally gets girl, girl leaves boy, boy has to do again, and boy and girl finally might get together again at the end, end of story. And how do you do that for a science documentary? Because what is interesting is when you can do it, when it does work, it's fantastically powerful. But there are casualties, which is that science doesn't naturally fall into those modes of, of um, communication. 
So this is then we just to explain the allusion here to this 3x structure. And so um, I'm going to take this through. My, so my interest is, is background is uh, hazards. I did a geography geology degree, geography geology PhD, looking at uh, uh, earthquake faults in the Aegean region, Greece and Turkey. And, and really that followed into an interest in seismic hazard and an interest in its relationship to people in particularly in the Mediterranean region. So in my one, the first point is the act, uh, the, the problem is that often when we're confronted with a public that wants to hear about, and I'm going to call this geoscience, I don't care if it's geography or geology, I could have that discussion if we want later on, it's kind of a barren sterile one to me, but, but the, the public meets geoscience often in times of real crisis. So suddenly, everyone's interested in, in a particular thing because it's there in front of them. This is obviously, well, it's not obviously, but it's Hurricane Katrina hitting uh, New Orleans. And it's an interesting one because that was a, an event, that Category 4 storm uh, hitting New Orleans was an event that was forecast and, and predicted in the sense that it was forecast, you know, even five years before there were articles in the popular press like Scientific American saying, the, the, uh, the wetland, the levees are, are, the whole area is sinking, the levees aren't able to cope with a Category 4 uh, kind of storm. You know, if we get a direct hit, the levees are going to, going to fail. It was for, uh, predicted in the sense of the storm track of that storm was known four days before, and it was very clear it was going to hit New Orleans. And yet it hit New Orleans, the levees broke, that was no surprise. It actually downgraded as it went on, it actually hit just as a Category 3. But still the levees broke. But what was absolutely stunning was just the complete meltdown of a city, of a first world city in a country with FEMA that's got some of the best hazard regulations in the world. It's, it's almost the, the gold standard. And so how did this happen? And the irony here is that there was enough geoscience information to tell the public, to tell decision makers that that was on the cards. And yet for everyone else apart from geoscientists would stand up and say, well, we told you so. It seems a huge surprise. So I'm going to uh, explore this in the first uh, part and really through my experience. And because um, I did geography geology because I didn't like human geography. Um, and it was um, just, well, it was just at this point in 2005, December 2005, when I realized what a terrible mistake I'd made. So I'm kind of, I don't know what I am now. Uh, this is La Conchita, which is uh, just north of Los Angeles, Santa Barbara. And it's a, it's a site of a, a mudslide, landslide mudslide. You can see the back scar um, up the, at the top there. And you can also see the, um, you can see the mounds where the mudslide were. And this is a commemoration to the 10 people who, who died here. And as I say, in January uh, 2005, there was a big, heavy uh, uh, rainstorm saturated the, the slopes and this previous landslide scar just remobilized and came sweeping down. I'm trying to work a Mac with this. Which, uh, that's a bit pointless. Right, so in the, we went there because uh, for a program I was doing called Journeys into the Ring of Fire and we met with Gina. And Gina's um, story really was very uh, dramatic because Gina, there's the, you can see the, the mudslide, remobilized mudslide down here. And this was the house that was destroyed, and this is Gina's house just there. She was directly across the street. In fact, the story she tells is of Charlie, her best friend, who was in the house across the road, who had actually moved into the caravan that you saw to let the watch. The Wallet family, who was a uh, family that didn't have, had lost their house, were staying there. 
And she tells the story of the, uh, the father of the family who had been down to the petrol station just off the picture here, walking up the street and seeing basically the mountain coming down and covering the house with his, uh, with his wife and kids and with Charlie and his dog. And it happened just a few months before, so it was very raw for, for Gina. And the funny thing for me was, we walked up this street and we talked about this. And we saw this house just tucked under here and it was for sale. And I remember saying, well, there's no way someone's going to buy that house. You open the curtains and there's crosses of the, where they found the bodies directly across. And every geoscience report that's been done on that mudslide, and there's been ne several by the USGS, has said the same thing. The next high precipitation event that happens will somehow remobilize that slope, and that landslide complex will move again. It's not rocket science. And she said, oh, that's been sold. And actually, she said, it's actually gone up in value since the landslide. So in the, after the landslide, the values went down, and then they picked up again, and they were now higher than they were the year before. Gina also told us, um, she said, uh, after, a month after the uh, landslide, I get informed by my insurance company that my insurance for this house here was no longer valid. I then get told several weeks after that that actually it, it was valid, but come renewal, it would not be renewed. She said, this was us in December, she said, last week I received my forms for renewal. So the insurance company aren't bothered about this either. Gina has read every science report there is to read about Lacanchita, as you would. She's intelligent, she's affluent, in other words, she can move if she wants, she's not moving. And I look at that and I think, you know, I, I mean, I don't study landslides, but if I was studying landslides, I don't think there's a single thing I could study about that landslide that would make Gina, and she's not alone, and her uh, neighbours move. There's something else there that's underlying that. And that's when I realised in some ways that that physical side of the, the hazards that I'd been doing was a little bit impotent. Otherwise, I'd always been thinking the more information we got, the more people would just respond to it. And clearly, that's not happened. So another story. This is Mount Merapi. I did a programme. Um, again, it was uh, Johnny's Into the Ring of Fire. And we went to Merapi. It's a really evil... Evil's the wrong word. It's a very dangerous volcano. Every few years, it erupts in a nasty way. It has a congealed top to it, which then tends to kind of fall off, fragment and produce these pyroclastic flows that go down the mountain and, and regularly kill every decade or so, sometimes more. And we went up the top there and we were looking at the, the monitoring system and it's one of the best monitored volcanoes in Indonesia. And, um, and Rudy here, as we were coming down the mountain, he, he told me a story off camera that just astounded me. And Rudy's story was, he said, of course, well, we do these monitoring and we detect the seismicity and the inflation of the volcano and, all, and we, we tell the government and they do a mandatory evacuation uh, uh, um, system and people are told to leave. And uh, of course some of the villages don't leave. And I said, what do you mean some of the villages don't leave? That's, that's crazy. And he said, oh no, they don't leave. They, they, more, many of the times they, they stay. And, and as we explored this further, and, and this is the, the evidence for this really, this was a, a village of Turco which is in the, the flanks of Merapi. And this was a, a place where during a mandatory evacuation, there was a volcanic crisis going on. The people were told to evacuate. They had a wedding in this uh, church hall. Pyroclastic flow came through and 40 people died in this place. And 
the arguments at the time were that the reason that people weren't leaving was because that they've got a spiritual connection to the volcano. In particular, this chap here, Mar Barajan, is the spiritual gatekeeper of, of Marapi. Um, and lives in a, a village called Palamsari. And, and basically, his responsibility is to commune with the volcano. And through a, a number of devices, he communicates with the volcano. And the story that was going around beforehand was the reason they weren't evacuating was because the volcano... And this is the place where their ancestors go. This is important. The ancestors, a lot of people go into the volcano. The reason they weren't uh, uh, leaving was because the volcano made it clear to them in various ways it wasn't going to erupt and harm them. The reason these people died, they said, was because they had actually held a wedding on the wrong day, not because they had le not left the, the uh, evacuation zone. And I just thought this was madness. I thought this is crazy. Volcanics prediction science, much better than anything to do with earthquakes. It's really good. And yet, to have a situation where we can get it so good, and yet communities were not doing it because of a, some kind of, kind of belief system seemed to me at the time um, extraordinary. Um, so when I came back, I, we uh, applied with this uh, human geographer, James Sidaway, uh, to do uh, for an ESRC NERC uh, studentship. And we got, um, I'm just, she's not here, so I can not embarrass her, but Kate Donovan to do this, who's now at Oxford. Um, and Kate spent several years uh, living up in uh, Pelhamsari and some of the other villages, talking to uh, the villagers about why they didn't leave. And what was interesting was there is that element of that spiritual connection to Marapi. That's absolutely the case. But a lot of people say, you know what, Mar Barajan, he's a bit odd. We don't really follow him. The real reason they don't do it is very, very simple. In that most of the, um, most of the livelihood for this upper flanks of the volcano is from collecting grass, feeding grass to uh, their cow, usually one family cow, collecting the milk and selling the milk. So people quite rightly say, well, if I evacuate, that's fine, I can evacuate my family. What, what about my cow? If I lose that cow, I am very, our family is likely to starve. In other words, they're making a rational decision that their chances of survival are better if they stay in the village than if they leave. And actually, if you think about it, they're probably right. The thing is, uh, last year, uh, Marapi erupted again. And uh, this eruption claimed 130 lives. And the pyroclastic flows went straight through Pelamsari and killed Mar Barajan and many of the people that, that Kate was interviewing. So this is, a, this is a Faustian pact that people make that is quite dangerous. In other words, there is this element of um, people having a, a belief system. But at the same time, it does uh, kind of clash um, with what our understanding is. And I think one of the ways, interesting ways is, to what extent can we communicate what we know to people who have a very different belief system and a way of understanding? One of the things that Kate, we had created this fantastic idea, and we, we haven't followed up, and I still think it's the best idea that, we, that she had in the whole thing, was most people in Indonesia get their, under, they get their information about anything through shadow puppetry. So the idea was to create a volcanic hazard shadow puppet show and take it around the villages and, and demonstrate it that way. Probably far more effective than any of the research papers that get kind of written. For me, the, the other place that really brought it home was um, after the Indian Ocean tsunami, and we went out to make a, a horizon in, in Thailand. And the, the key thing that brought it home was this idea of the clash of cultures, really, that you get in these places. So if you look at the top left here, this is the Adaman Islands, which were devastated just off of Thailand. This is them 100 years ago. And what we see is a people 
with houses on stilts, using traditional materials, are people that know very well that the, the, the sea is dangerous. It can change, it can flood. In fact, in Simile Island, which was very near the epicentre of the earthquake, but, but further to the south, they'd had uh, about 100 years, no, about 80 years before, they'd had a tsunami, a smaller earthquake and a tsunami. And in this similar island, this time in 2004, of the 70,000 people that lived in that island, despite being in the main area of the shaken and the biggest waves, seven people died. And they died, I mean, they didn't die, the majority, because they did one thing, which is when they felt the earth shake, they ran up slope. So this idea of, communities that have maintained some kind of connection and oral history and, and storytelling have actually managed to pass on information about the cultural context of hazards. This is a famous photograph of the German family at Kaulak, um, where the mother is running out to, to warn the family as the first waves come in. And these, they all survive. But this is that this family, and indeed all of the, you know, the people that go there, uh, from, you know, this is Sweden's highest death toll. <laughs> Indian Ocean. This is a, an event that's very different from your typical hazard. For those people, their hazard scape is not of tsunamis. They come from Germany. And yet we now, within hours, can take ourselves from one place to one hazard scape to another one without any idea of what we're getting into. And the thing is, this is what meets the wave when it comes in. That's what met it 100 years ago. That's what gets it now. The um, one of the chaps who survived that we, we interviewed, uh, I was chatting to him afterwards, and he said, you know, the thing is, he was a surfer. He said, the thing is, you think you know what a tsunami is. It's a wall of water coming at you really fast, turbulent, wow. He says, but along the front of Kaolak, you have lots of shacks, concrete shacks, um, selling soft drinks, ice cream, etc., to the tourists on the beach. He says, what you've got to imagine is a, a wall of concrete and fridges coming at you. And that's the difference. That's the difference in 100 years. Is what we've, we've changed the nature of the vulnerability. We've changed the nature of the hazard through the vulnerability by what we've done. And the, the interesting thing then is, the funny thing about it from a, my perspective, a media perspective, was um, the thing went out in BBC One called Tsunami and Anatomy of a Disaster, and I didn't feature And then the Friday beforehand, they told us that the two scientists, one had gone to Sri Lanka and I had gone to Thailand, were dropped, we were on the cutting room floor, because the testimony of people who'd actually experienced this just was hugely more powerful than the scientists standing there saying what a tsunami was. And that's an interesting one that I'll come back to, which is that people, listening to people who have actually got something first-hand to say about something is intensely amazing, rather than someone who just turns up and tells you uh, what it is. But here's the thing, this is my photograph from uh, one of the, rich, the big hotels, plush hotels, and this is the third department back. There was one and one there, another one there. And this wall here only really survived because it's facing in the direction the waves came in. But when I was there, there was lots of talk about, oh, we're going to learn from this and we're going to rebuild in different places. But when you talk to the hotel owner, he's rebuilding there. Uh, and he's rebuilding there for two reasons. One is because that's where his land is, it's where he's bought. But I mean, the locals live a kilometre in land. Um, he's also going because you guys, we want to live there. We want to live 50 yards from the beach. We don't want to live 500 metres from the beach or five kilometres from the beach. We want to live at the beach. So the nature of... Um, it, it's this realisation that the tsunami, the physical property of the tsunami that kicked in 100 years ago in this area, 
Uh, it's probably very similar to what kicked in. It's, it's not as big, but similar to what we kicked in in 2004. But the, what it met in terms of the human environment was completely different. And that's what I'm meaning about this realisation in my head that suddenly the physical bit was the easy bit. And actually, you know, we think of hazards and, and physical processes of volcanoes working tsunamis and all of this is really complicated. And it is, but it's absolutely nothing compared to the social science dimension of, of what you do. Um, and in, in various programmes, I'll come back to this later, I've talked about the, the situation here in Istanbul. Um, now, Istanbul is waiting for a, a big earthquake. The, the earthquake fault line that runs along the northern Turkey has unzipped its almost entire length in the last 60 years, apart from a one 20 to 30 kilometre section just south of Istanbul. You know, if that doesn't go in the next few decades, we've completely misunderstood earthquakes, which of course is possible, but it's getting unlikely. More likely is that in your lifetime, you will see Istanbul destroyed. Now, the thing is, to what extent do we continue to study the geological aspects and all the rest of it, rather than putting all that aside and saying, look, that city is going to be destroyed, what are we going to do about it? That is a city of 11 million people that we now know is waiting for the big one. That's where our earthquake science has taken us. But the harder bit is what we actually do about it. And that's where I'm going to, you know, thinking about the, the communication. How do we get this message across because it's a message that isn't getting across and yet it's actually incredibly simple. I, I'm not demeaning you, I could do this lecture to a bunch of six-year-olds and they would understand the problem that's here. So I, I think one of the issues that we've got really is that on the one hand poor and effective communication is kind of holding back the application of all this huge amounts of geoscience knowledge we've built up. Fantastic knowledge, but we can't seem to get it out there. I also think that there are, I'm too long to go into in this talk, but there are systemic barriers within the academic community and within the science community that actually in, uh, kind of prevent us or hinder us, inhibit us from getting that out, and they need to be overcome. But the bottom line, really, and if you only take one take-home message from the whole thing, is that I think we need to be doing that. It's geoscientists that should be doing it. It's not trying to get journalists to be trained in earthquake science or volcano science or whatever your topic is. It's us understanding how we communicate and learning some of the tricks that, that they've got and other communicators have got. So that really brings us to Act 2, really, which is the journey. How do we go from knowing tons of stuff about something to actually being able to talk to other people about it. Um, people have to ask about crews. I just passed this up because this is a typical size. This is Brian Fisher getting interviewed. He's ant man, someone who knows more about communication than anyone else. He studies the ants in, well, here he is in Madagascar as a kind of mode to look at bio, uh, conservation, um, so diverse biodiversity, richness in, in forests. And he's fantastic at getting messages across. But that's a typical crew. There's three, maybe one other with a researcher um, and and myself going around. So here's the question. And you, what I invite you to do in the next few minutes is to think about it. Whatever area of geography you are into, to think about this. What is it that people need to know? Because that's going to predetermine everything, really. And there's various ways of thinking what they need to know. One of them is the idea of the information deficiency module, model, which says the poor general public they don't know anything. Their, their minds are vacuum of... There's nothing in there in terms of science information. What we should do is fill that vacuum. 
So we've got our, our geoscience information. We're just filling that, topping them up with lots and lots of information because they need to know this stuff. It's good for them to know. They should know. They should know what you're doing. I, uh, a general public understands science is better able to uh, comment on scientific issues. It's able to, able to hold our politicians responsible for make the scientific decisions they make, etc. And let me just give you uh, an example, maybe a shocking example of this. This was a National Science Foundation survey done about 10 years ago or so in the States. And they asked, they phoned American adults and asked them about basic science. And I'm going to ask you, so you can put hands up here. This is the, they're all true or false. So the center of the earth is very hot. True or false? Hands up, please. True or false? Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Who thinks that's true? Okay. Uh, oxygen we breathe comes from plants. Who thinks that's true? Well, the people are less hesitant. Electrons are smaller than atoms. Oh, but people are more confident. The continents on which we live have been moving their location for millions of years will continue to move in the future. Oh, thank goodness, okay. Uh, I'm going to stop at this because it's uh, human beings as we know them today develop. Oh, no. Uh, from earlier species of animals. That's kind of an evolution one. How many agree? True. The earliest human beings lived at the same time as the dinosaurs. True? Oh. <laughs> I'm going to give you the results. Um, so, essentially it's very hot. 78% of uh, American adults said this. Which means 22% didn't think it was very hot, or didn't know. So that's nearly a quarter of American adults weren't sure that the centre of the Earth was hot. Um, look at, for example, number six. Earliest humans lived at the same time as dinosaurs. 48% thought that was. So that means the more than half actually thought... Wait 48% thought it was false. So 52% thought that was true. More than half American people thought that dinosaurs and humans lived at the same time. Now, we can giggle at this. I wouldn't mean it. I giggled at it the first time I saw it. But if you look at the surveys, the American public is actually better at science than we are. They visit science museums more, they watch science programs more, they read science things more. So the question then is, in Europe, for example, in Britain, what would happen if you went into Oxford Main Street? Well, maybe not Oxford Main Street. You'd hope you'd maybe meet a few academics. But <laughs> what if you went into the Main Street of a typical city and asked those questions? I'm not sure you would get a much of a different one. But it's a suggestion. And one of the reasons, I think, is this. This is what science is. This diagram tries to look at the kind of topology of science. For interest, your geography's here, between classical studies, nutrition, human geography. But if you imagine, if you imagine talking to... I wonder if it's the same. I was just thinking, talking to your parents about geography and what they their understanding of geography is, it's transformed completely. I know from the geology side that even going back 20 years to when I did my degree, but certainly 50 years to what some would do a degree, it's absolutely transformed. The, the edge of my field is now astronomically far and away from where the kind of centre was uh, 50 years ago. And if you imagine that all those sciences are pushing ahead with their frontier, it means that science is a fantastic place. But you imagine the poor person who's done a little bit of science at school and is now trying to follow some of the issues to do with stem cell research or nuclear fusion or GM or anything to do with their kind of environmental fields. So I think the, the point is that if there's a 
dilution in science is because science itself has become so incredibly complicated. So there's another way of looking at this. They say, look, this is the way we do it. It's dead complicated science. So what we'll do is we'll make it simple. We'll just mainly talk to them about the important things. It's called the rational choice model. Things that people can be expected to make a rational choice about. That's what we'll concentrate on. We'll just focus on communicating that packages of information. For example, one thing we might all agree on here that's important for people to know is climate change. So we might say, right, we should tell people about climate change. But that does beg a question, which is, well, what do we tell them? Because that assumes that there's a body of agreed knowledge that we can just tell them. And clearly, an example with climate change is that there is a, a contested body even within science. Now, it depends what level you decide to take your contested. The vast majority, 90-odd percent of climate scientists, probably 90, it's more than that, 98 percent of climate scientists have no problem with it. But it's different. Down the food chain of the scientists, there's various kind of issues. And there's lots of places where there's big disagreement. That, for example, is water going down um, a system on top of the, the Greenland ice sheet. And one of the big arguments is, where's the fresh water going? Is it going down straight to the base, down these moulins, to lubricate the base of the ice sheet because it's moving. We know the ice sheets are, are moving faster. And, and the idea is that the very likelihood is that we don't really understand ice sheets. They're going to be moving um, and uh, melting much faster than we, we previously thought. Other people say that's, not, that's rubbish. That actually what's happening is that you've got much warmer sea temperatures. The, the ice sheets are calving faster, and that's allowing the ice to move behind. It's got nothing to do with water. So the point is... There is no, at one level in science, there is no consensus. And uh, some people would go further and say there shouldn't be consensus. Science is about disagreement. It's about challenging. It's about questioning. But uh, I'd have to say, I think the public will find that very luxurious of us to just be able to sit and question all the time when actually they're trying to make decisions. They want to know what to do. And, of course, the irony is we all deal with consensus. Whenever you go into a lecture, a lecture with a member of staff that teaches something, they tell you consensus. They tell you the framework of understanding of that particular topic at that time. You get given textbooks, which are consensus. So it, we do deal with consensus trying to wrap it up. But the problem is, when we get into the public domain, we find this very tricky to say things that are absolute consensus and to, as a community to be a consensus. So this means this idea of a rational model is quite difficult because there is no agreed set of information from scientists, from geographers, say, for, say from climate science community, as to what to give people to tell them about climate change. So there's another way of looking at it, and this is the way that I look at it. Um, and that is to say, what do people need to know? And the thing is, well, why don't you ask them? Because the other way to look at it is to say, well, what do they want to know? Maybe that's the way. To, maybe that's our way to think about it. So there's Oxford High Street. Those people are busy. They're running around their daily lives. What is it they're interested in? What is it they think they would either need to know or would like to know? If you go and ask them, generally in the UK, you find this. This is a survey of attitudes towards uh, public attitudes towards energy environment. So they ask, what's the most important issues in the top left there? So this is what people, on average, are thinking about. And environment is isn't too bad. It's in the top ten. So it, it beats taxis, but it's not quite as important as the, as the age and population. But it's asylum seekers, terrorism, and crime that kind of uh, wins out. 
But luckily enough, uh, stock market, for example, is, uh, is not very well thought of. Within environmental concerns, here are the areas which they're, they're mainly worried about. Global warming, big, big amount of on global warming. So the point is that there are things, and this will, the point is that will actually move up and down on a daily basis. In other words, things that are in the news, take it up, and if there's lots of other things going on, something about the stock market, for example, or some of the AIDS or abortion, then these things drop down. And the point is that, that because people are kind of interested in these things, if you work in those things, then if there's an event um, or a, a newsworthy piece, then people will be interested in finding out about it. And that is the window of opportunity for you to get across whatever key point, one or two key points you want to put across. Um, but that's only a very narrow set of areas. What about the other things? Because there's probably lots of people in this audience looking at things that have got nothing to do with that. For example, for my thing, earthquakes, doesn't really appear to the UK public to be something to bother about. So let's look at the role of the media shaping, uh, designing people's attitudes. And this is from Steve Sparks, who's uh, one of the, uh, probably the top volcanologists in Britain, heavily involved in volcanic hazard. And he, you know, he says, look, the media are really useful. They have a fantastic potential role to play. Um, talking about how to persuade politicians to act and communities to take notice of scientific information. But then he kind of says, but the problem is, all this sensationalist stuff. They really want to be sensationalists. They're only interested in death and destruction. When I first started doing television, it was um, Mega Tsunami and uh, uh, what was it? Super Volcano, Krakatoa. I called it Geoporn. It was kind of like the planet can kill you in a thousand different ways. It always seemed to be a. I've, I've done a little bit of Geoporn at the time, but I always thought ultimately it was a rather barren uh, way to do it. And, and Steve is, is someone who has been quite critical of, of the media in this regard. Um, but I think Steve's missing the point, actually, here. And that is because it's, it, it presupposes that the media's job is to provide scientific information to the general public. And that's not the media's job. The media's job, if it's a print journalist, is to sell newspapers. And if it's a television, television programme, it's to get people to watch the television programme. And I think Ted Neal, um, the Jolsock, who's a PR person at Jolsock, has got it right. He says, by always bearing in mind two crucial facts, that the news media are not going to change the way they work to please scientists and that they should be approached as a branch of the entertainment industry, all subsequent decisions and behaviours on part of the scientists and the companies and institutions will be more likely to base, be based with success. In other words, if you accept that the media is about entertaining, it's about engaging, it's about providing almost a distraction to normal life, then you're actually going to have a much easier time at getting your thing across. The tricky thing is, it presupposes or it requires you to make your message entertaining and engaging and all the things that the media are looking for. And that, for many people, might be very uncomfortable about the nature of the research they're dealing with. They may feel it trivialises it, etc. But here's the thing. Um, for me, this is from the National Science Foundation uh, review, which is online. In both the United States and, that, and Europe, most adults find out about the latest to science and technology developments from watching television. The print media rank a distant second. The internet, although not the main source of news for most people, has become the main place to get information about specific science and technology subjects. Now, that's 2004. I suspect the internet has grown even more to be the place where people go to if they're wanting some specific information. But I would argue that television remains the place where people get grounded in, in the culture of science really, about the breadth of science. 
So if you're interested in one thing and I'm, you'll go into Wikipedia, you'll type it and, and that'll take you to a place and that might give you a kind of instant fix of information. The irony is what they found is that if people are really interested in a scientific issue, what they tend to do is then go to more specialist books. There's been a huge rise in science books over the last 20 years. But nevertheless, television is the place where the public perception of science, in our case geoscience, is made. And so what I want to argue, really, is that it's this thing of context. What popular uh, science does is it provides a context. It provides a mental framework for a, for a viewer to be able to learn about new things so that they've got this framework, so that when they suddenly find someone telling them about desertification in the Gobi, for example, they can place it somewhere because they didn't know about desertification before and now they heard something roughly about desertification. They know it's a problem. They know it's a kind of a problem in Asia. Ah, okay, that fits. Now, without that, if you don't have that template, there's no place to put these things. So, to my mind, what, you've got to, what we're going to have to have is a situation where we've got different tiers of approaches and one of them is a kind of a base level is providing information at, at a kind of popular mass level, which is this setting up context. So, um, that's the, the second act, really, which is to say that what we should be doing isn't communicating at all. It's entertaining. We should be go looking into the subjects, our interests, what we're doing, and, and whenever we'll get that public face, be thinking, what is it I do? What is it that my, you know, in my area that I'm working in that's interesting? What are the stories I can tell? That's what, I, that's what we should be doing. So with that in mind, I'm going to kind of, the third act, really, in terms of the solution... It's very arrogant. It's only because of the, the, the React structure, really. But I'm going to just talk about my research and how that relates to this idea. And it's, um, it's this idea of making use of a good story. So what I'm interested increasingly in, in is what's called earthquake archaeology, or we call it earthquake archaeology, which is the connection between the earthquakes recorded in the archaeological record, the archaeological past. For example, these uh, dislocated or... Uh, column drums in a Greek temple, and which are which are thought to be generated by earthquakes, and the, that's the Sichuan earthquake in, in China, which is another word, seismic hazard. Can by looking into the archaeological record we get things about the recurrence of earthquakes, about the frequency, about the damage, about where they occur, that will tell us about future ones. Now, some people are very sceptical. This is uh, Charles Richter, he of the Richter scale, says ancient accounts of earthquakes don't help as much; they're incomplete. And accuracy is usually sacrificed to make the most of a good story. I think most seismologists today would still argue with that in terms of seismic hazard. And in fact, I agree with this. I don't think, and it's kind of a, some ways I'm arguing against the whole set of things I'll say later, but I don't think intrinsically studying earthquakes in the archaeological record will actually advance seismic hazard. But bear with me, because I think there is something interesting here. So let's go. Let's see what it is. Okay, so this is a youthful me. This was the, you know, so when I finished my PhD in 1990, working on these earthquake faults, there's a striated fault surface through, so you've, that bit's gone up and the, other, the land has gone down very suddenly in a series of kind of jumps. I studied in Greece, and one of the, after I finished my PhD, I started uh, working in, in university in London. I studied um, this place in central Greece in this particular fault, so I spent a good few years studying this, this particular fault. And... Um, it ended up being a story uh, that close to this, but this fault last moved, we think, we don't know when it moved, but it moved 
we think, in an earthquake in 373 BC, which destroyed the local city of Heliki. And it was Heliki, really, that was, as I started my work there, uh, an archaeological site had started up. They were looking for Heliki. And, and the reason why I say looking for uh, becomes clear in the next one, because the Heliki earthquake is a fantastic earthquake. The accounts of it are extraordinary. This is a, a later account by a Roman writer, but there's lots of accounts from the time. The sea flooded in far over the land and overwhelmed the city and its surroundings. And the swell of the sea so covered the sacred grove of Poseidon that nothing could be seen but the tops of the trees. A sudden tremor was sent by the god, and with the earthquake the sea ran back, dragging down Heliki into the receding waters with every living person. The main story was that the, when people went the next day to find Heliki, which was the capital city of the region, they couldn't find any evidence of it. So this, was, this event happened in roughly in the time where Plato was writing um, Tineus and Critias, which is the place where he describes this uh, account of uh, Atlantis. And so one of the arguments that I had meant, I'd written, a, uh, I think it was a Guardian piece, saying, look, if you're going to have Atlantis as anything real, then surely one of the things it's got to be is this event. Huge, colossal event in Plato's lifetime, which has got many of the hallmarks of, of uh, Atlantis. And that was the thing. That got picked up, and that became the horizon, and it was a huge... Uh, and it's a fantastic story. It's a great story. Now, um, just to bring you to some geology here, really. Gulf of Corinth, this is the Corinth Canal. Athens is tucked over here. And... Uh, Heliki is somewhere in there. I won't go into the Heliki story. It's a fantastic story, actually, in terms of geomorphology. The answer turns out to be uh, come from coastal geomorphology, actually, but I'm going to leave that. So that was the area that was, we think was affected. That's the fault I was studying. The other area that was affected in the same earthquake was across the, uh, the gulf there in Delphi. So what I'd like to do is to jump across to, to Delphi. Now, Delphi is an amazing place. It's, in the classical world, this was the main centerpiece of, of the, the classical Greek world. It's a place that held the famous Delphic Oracle, one of the, the great oracles, arguably the greatest oracle of the ancient world. Such that, for example, King Crozius, king of Lydia, uh, when he wanted to make a momentous uh, decision, he road-tested three or four um, different oracles about a particular question, and Delphi was the most reliable. So he went to Delphi with his big one, and he said, should I invade Persia? And Crozius, uh, the, what happens is, is that there's a, the idea is, and this was attested by people at the time working in a temple, is that just under here, there's a subterranean chamber. And that, uh, a priestess, which was originally uh, a young virgin, and then something happened, something really event happened that we don't quite know about. She became a, a, a lady of good repute, an elderly lady of good repute. Um, I don't think it was the same woman, but the point was that they obviously said that young virgins weren't reliable enough and it was much easier. So and this priestess would sit on a, a, a kind of tripod, inhale the intoxicating vapours committing a chasm in the rock, go into a mantric trance and make some kind of prophecy, which would be interpreted by the male priests around. So when Crozier has asked his question, the answer came back, if you invade Persia, you will destroy a great empire. So Crozier thought, yeah, beauty. And he went, and he was destroyed, and his great empire was destroyed with him. So there was always that little bit of ambiguity there. Um, but here it is. And the interesting thing was this idea of a chasm. French workers had archaeologists that excavated for a century, never found anything like a chasm. So they had started to, to think that these descriptions about it from a time weren't correct. But then a few years ago, a geologist published a paper in, in geology, actually, 
saying that they thought there probably was something in it. And that's because there's a whole series of earthquake fault lines that bore more or less define Delphi. Uh, if you drive into Delphi um, from, the, from the east side, you actually go along the road, and this is the fault surface, the fault plane that's come down. It's adorned with various things, but that's the, the actual fault plane. And you come around the corner, and it kind of winds its way up the slope there, and, and Delphi's located here. So there's kind of two strands of it. But the point is that if you look at the locations of spring lines within the Delphi site, it had been argued by several people over the years that that was probably because there were lines of fault lines, very small fault lines, nothing major, but little just accommodating some of the dislocation. And one of them is argued to go right through the Temple of Apollo, which is where you saw the, the housing, the, the Delphi Oracle. And indeed, this is a, the suggestion then that this is the, the temple, so the oracular chamber would have been down here. And the idea is that there's a fault system uh, that comes down through here. There's a series of springs. And um, this isn't uh, published this bit, but there is very clear evidence that there's been movement on this uh, because you can see it. You can see the temple right at the fault gets bent, essentially. comes down beautifully straight. There's a kink, beautifully straight. So that bit over here is moving to your left as you look at it, and this bit here is moving to the right. And it's a little bit of slip. It's not a huge chasm, it's just an earthquake fault, and there can be very almost hairline. So this is an instance when we have a situation where a fault line has possibly been influencing in some manner some of the great decisions of the ancient world. I want to jump on a little bit, because that stuff's all uh, published and, and kind of out there, really. But I've been, the last few years, been interested in a number of sites around the uh, eastern Mediterranean, that have fault lines associated with uh, ancient sites, sometimes very intimately. And this is an intriguing one, so I'll use this to kind of make the bigger point. This is uh, Cnidus, and Cnidus was the kind of Milton Keynes of its day. <laughs> I know it's not a great... Uh, um, the, the point was it's a new town, it was deliberately built, uh, and it was the first to have the kind of the normal grid-style kind of pattern. And... Um, it was placed deliberately, rather oddly, in this completely dry uh, end of a, the Dachi Peninsula in southwestern Turkey. And on that, there's a big fault line, which is, comes up here. You can see it's in this uh, map, and it comes across here. And I'm going to talk about this bit. I'm going to talk about that bit. It's hard to see on here, but essentially, the, the fault line is coming up here. Oh, you'll never believe this. It's just such a degree. Let me just go on. So the first bit I want to take you to is the Love Temple, which is fantastic. Because it was, it was excavated by Dr. Cur Professor Cornelia Love from uh, Cornell University. And the temple, it's a round temple dedicated to Aphrodite. It doesn't get any better than that. Can you imagine writing the research proposal? <laughs> You're just going to say, yes, go. No one else can study that. So there it is. And then Love in 1970 describes, very accurately uh, describes this temple. And what's amazing is a crack runs right the way through it, completely bisects it. Beautifully. Now, the thing about this temple is that is the, isn't the most recent one. The temple was built in the classical time. Then it was uh, destroyed. It was rebuilt in Roman times, or Hellenistic times, actually. It was then destroyed again. And in late Roman times, um, it was put together, but it was never really a functioning temple. So there's at least two instances where it was broken and rebuilt. Now, the interesting thing from a geological point of view is, this is a terrible photograph, this bush, I wish I'd... This is a nice, smooth fault plane here, of the type you've seen before, but 
couldn't get round far enough. But the point is, it continues up and it basically bisects the temple. So that this side of the temple is cut into bedrock, and that side you can see the alluvial fill of a series of kind of terraces. So that's interesting. I remember thinking, God, that was bad luck, wasn't it? Oh, amazing. They, they built it right on a fault. And then, then it got broken, and they built it again right on a fault. It took me, I was at a flight home, and I was going, that's just plain odd, that. They must have built deliberately on a fault. It's very hard to think not. So then you start to think, why on earth would they do that? And before I, I get into musing on that, I'm going to skip on to the other, other site. This is the other sanctuary, the main sanctuary at, at Canidus, um, Sanctuary of Demeter. But you can see it, this is the fault plane. This surface is the fault plane. These are little niches carved into the rock, which led the um, Charles Newton, who was sent out by the British Museum in the late 1800s to kind of borrow bits and things from the British Museum, to suppose that there was going to be a great temple under here. And he thought it was a sanctuary Demeter for various things. And Demeter's a kind of underworld affinity um, deity. So he, he just put some gelignite in or whatever it is, blasted a big hole, and then went in. And he argued that, although he had no idea this was a fault plane, he called it the scarp, he found evidence of a, what call a, discrete, a violent convulsion of nature and argued that an earthquake had, had displaced things. So here's the intriguing thing. And normally I've got a whole series of different sites where I argue this and we, we come to this point. But here's the thing. Is if you... Well, there are several reasons why I think that uh, earthquake fault lines are important. One of the most obvious ones is because fault lines are pathways for water. So most of the spring lines in the Mediterranean, uh, that karstic Mediterranean environment, are channeled along faults. They're the conduits of the subsurface and the springs emerge along fault lines and in areas associated with fault lines. So if you're having any kind of settlement in the ancient world, you need a persistent spring line, and especially in Greek times when water has an incredible, uh, important therapeutic and ritualistic significance. So you basically want good water supply. And actually, funny enough, fault lines give you that. But imagine if you've got a water supply that also has got some funny stuff going on. So you've got either hot spring water coming out, that makes it kind of special, or even better, hot spring water with vapours coming out. It becomes an even more special place. It's a place you put a settlement. So there's lots of reasons why you may well want to build your, your town Right beside an earthquake fault line, even though, of course, you don't know it's an earthquake fault line. Except at one point, perhaps you do. At some point, you've got a city where suddenly this leaps into action, rips straight through your whole settlement. And what I find absolutely intriguing is what does that do to your worldview? And what does it do to your, uh, how you refer to that? That was a wall beforehand. Suddenly it leaps into action. What does it mean? Now I have no idea what it means. And... I don't think classicists do, and, and I don't think archaeologists do, because no one's identified these things often from the archaeology point of view. It's they're just walls. But no one's really studied what it is to associate with an, an earthquake fault line. So um, here's the thing. This is a, a different place, Mycenae, a famous Lion's Gate at Mycenae, and there's the famous Lion Gate, and there's a famous fault for me, fault scar. I mean, it's famous for me, it is a fault scar, that actually cuts the Lion's Gate. In other words... There are cities across the ancient world that have built themselves on fault lines. Here, just simply to avoid the laziness of a longer, bigger wall and just use the natural wall. Now, 
What does that tell me about seismic hazard? Probably nothing. We do you know these places of earthquakes. I think we nothing. But it's a blooming good story. It's a really good story. I think in the research side, I think it's got much more interest to archaeology, actually. I think that does, because suddenly there's a new perspective template to start looking at ancient sites. But for hazard, I think it's just a story. And I think the point is that you can use that story. And you can use that story to, to tell people, and at the end, they know there's earthquakes, and those earthquakes are false. And there's something about it. So you can use it uh, as, a, as a, a tool. Back to Istanbul, for example. Um, we first did, we told this story about Istanbul featured in the last big series, How Earth Made Is. It featured in Journeys from the Centre of the Earth, which is us here. It featured in Horizon. We've told the story of Istanbul at least three times now. And it still surprises people. And that means that people still don't know what I would have thought is the most basic thing, is that Istanbul's waiting for a huge earthquake. And until people know these basic things, they actually can't deal with some of the more thorny issues as to what you, we should actually do. So I guess, I guess the point is here that you just, you, if you've got a good story, you just keep having to tell it. You have the simple story and just baton away at it. Tomorrow, by the way, there's a, there's a really big earthquake vulnerability conference uh, in our sciences and uh, some fantastic speakers there. So if people are interested in that, they should maybe think about that. So why are we doing all this? Why are we telling all these things about earthquakes? What are we actually wanting to get the information across? Well, I think in earthquakes, there is only one story to tell, one message, and that is that we can build to withstand earthquakes. So why don't we? This is a picture of a primary school in China in the, the Sichuan earthquake. I, I think something like 150 children, kids, died in that. Um, and yet... If you look at the uh, office blocks on either side, hardly touched. And it's not just China. This happens again and again. When earthquakes strike, the buildings that fall down are municipal buildings, schools and hospitals. And that, in the 21st century, is despicable. Absolutely despicable. That we, our science has got to such a level that we can do amazing things, even with earthquakes, and yet we can't still get society to put bricks on top of bricks in a secure way. The technology is basic. We knew it 50 years ago. We're not better now, but we knew it 50 years ago. So for me, all of these programs about finding stories with earthquakes are just opportunities to say the same thing, which is that we can do this. This is not rocket science, but actually it is rocket science because it involves the social science side of things. Um, and that's it, really. Thank you very much. <laughs>